0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the state of the Supreme Court in the time since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Also going to be talking about in New York City, NYPD over-policing the West Indian Day celebration, how that connects to broader issues of housing and police terror. Also going to be talking about the uh, walk for justice for political prisoners, Leonard Peltier. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your call. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor of the American Prospect. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, you recently published a piece uh, on the uh, American prospect entitled The Supreme Court is Vulnerable on Abortion. And you raise uh, a couple of interesting points talking about how, um, in a way, the, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court it seems to be in question for some Americans following the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade and the protection around uh, uh, abortion rights. And you also seem to think that um, the reality of the fall out of uh, uh, the overturning of Roe uh, may have some consequences for conservatives as well. And so, just to begin, I also we could sort of break down how you're viewing um, the estimation of the Supreme Court, perhaps in the popular consciousness in the United States. And I mean, do you think that there's a way back as we head towards uh, midterms here in the U.S.? Yeah.
1: So if you look at you know a, a opinion poll from mid 2021, uh, a total approval of the Supreme Court came in at about 60 percent. Immediately after the Dobbs decision, the same poll found that its approval rating had dropped to 38 percent. You know, the court, I think, had been perceived as sort of outside politics, and it had, you know, the uh, lingering afterglow of legalizing gay marriage, which is very popular now, Uh, you know, the Warren Court decisions. And this, you know, uh, decision to strip away the abortion rights of people in conservative states, basically, um, thanks to all these trigger laws and other bans that have been passed since then, uh, I think has really infuriated a lot of people on this. A large majority of people disagree with the decision and the way that the court just you know, decided to overturn its own precedent based on partisan hackery, basically. And So it suggests that, you know, people are sort of coming to grips with the fact that the court is a political institution. It's basically a super legislature um, that, you know, rules by decree. And uh, you don't necessarily have to listen to it all the time just because, you know, uh, five or six, uh, you know, Federalist Society goons have said something doesn't mean that everyone else has to just take it. And there's one thing in particular that Congress can do, according to the Constitution, it can regulate the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, which is almost all of its cases, however it wants. And in fact, they recently did so in the Inflation Reduction Act. They said that there will be no uh, judicial review of uh, various things, including parts of the uh, drug price provisions that they uh, put in there. And you know, this is something that not only has Congress done several times in the past, the court itself has admitted that yes, according to the Constitution, Congress can limit the scope of what the Supreme Court is allowed to rule on. And it's just sort of been custom and habit up till now, though they just sort of, you know, pretend they're defenseless against right wing jurisprudence. But there's a tool there if Democrats uh felt like picking it up and passing you know, a national abortion legalization or, you know, promising to do so should they be able to hold Congress.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about your piece is how like we, we continue to see like these, frankly, horrific stories about what women are dealing with across the country as these abortion bans take hold in in different states. And you seem to feel like this may have a, a sort of a negative impact or sort of a bad PR kind of effect on conservatives that could provide a uh, uh, avenue for uh, Democrats if they play their cards correctly. I mean, uh, how do you see that? that as the case. And I mean, do you think the Democrats are poised to make such a move?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really clear in the aftermath of Dobbs that the sort of broad middle of Americans have been totally misled about the reality of abortion rights and reproductive care more broadly by, you know, anti-abortion propaganda. You know, you had these these guys and, and, and gals uh, standing around abortion clinics with gruesome pictures of fetuses, you know, that had that been taken out of mothers and stuff. And the impression created was that most abortions are of a viable, you know, basically couple of days before birth uh, infant, and it's an irresponsible person who, you know, didn't had premarital sex or something like that. Um, when in reality, you know, the vast majority of abortions happen uh, early, early in the pregnancy, um, as quickly as possible. Nobody wants to be pregnant for longer if they can help it. And of, of abortions that happen later in the pregnancy, almost every time it is uh, either a rape or incest victim or someone with a life-threatening condition that, th- that may, you know, threaten the life of the mother— or the fetus is totally non-viable. It doesn't have a brain. It's missing multiple organs. You know, it's just like incompatible with life. And that's what in virtually every case, that's what happens with those later term abortions. And then more broadly, you have this whole universe of stuff that is, um, you know, certain uh, cancer drugs, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, drugs that treat like lupus and stuff like that. And those, can cause miscarriages if if people are pregnant. And so these bans are not only, you know, uh interfering with with people that, you know, most Americans agree should be able to get an abortion that is people getting one very early in the pregnancy or if there's rape or incest or if there's a medical emergency. Uh but you're 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 turning women in general into second class citizens like you have to take a pregnancy test before you can get your cancer drugs and stuff like that and it's just totally unworkable in terms of providing medical care for for women or you know any any person who becomes pregnant and so um you know democrats i think have been by and large picking this up you know john Fetterman. Uh, did a big, you know, abortion rally uh, the other day in Pennsylvania. He's running for the state, uh, the, the Senate seat, the U.S. Senate seat, of course. And, um, you know, there's been a broad move uh, to pr- protect abortion rights in states that Democrats do control and make this into a campaign issue. What they haven't done and what they should do, in my opinion, is uh, make a credible promise. That if they get two more senators, they're going to do a carve out of the filibuster uh, and pass a codification of Roe versus Wade or national abortion legalization. Um, you know, the, the Senate has been wishy washy on that, but if you could pass something through the House and just be like, look, there's only two people who disagree, which seems to be the case, it's Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. So if we can just get past that margin and we could pass a national law, and set this up. But that's in order to be able to make that campaign promise, it needs to be credible. You need to get people on the record. And so far they haven't done that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people even now, still wondering, Ryan, like why why has it taken this long, you know, for Democrats to really you know, step up and, you know, codify Roe into law or to you know, have abortion rights be enshrined and protected in a way to where you know, something like uh, the Dobbs uh, decision doesn't happen or go down because I mean, we have what is sort of a basic democratic right uh, for women being uh, stripped away here little by little, which I think is why it was met with such, you know, large protests and things even even after the uh leak decision uh came out as you know as memory serves you, you know what i mean and so you know it, it it's sort of like you know do you think that uh in terms of voters, you know, the, the the electorate, I mean, do you think that, I mean, certainly I think the, the will is still there to want to fight for abortion rights, but I think whether or not the fervor for Democrats as an institution is is quite there in the same way. I mean, we've been speaking about polls and uh, things like that, and uh, I don't know, I feel like the reality is there are like a number of things that uh, Democrats could have done both in, uh, this moment and even in, in years, uh, past and even following the, uh, uh the recent Dobbs decision that could have protected or enshrined uh, abortion rights that, that didn't seem to take place. And so I guess what I'm really asking is, you know, do you think the, do you think it's just the Supreme Court or do you think that the Democrats maybe have, um, like a credibility issue on their hands, um, not only from the standpoint of the Biden administration, but just sort of um, historically uh, in terms of how these things are fought for, or maybe not fought for more to the point. And just do you think that we might be living through a moment of uh I don't want to say comeuppance for uh, Democrats, but I mean, do you think that things may be reaching an inflection point with them as it pertains to the electorate and some of these really up bread and butter issues that continue to prop up over the years?
1: Yeah, there certainly is a credibility gap, you know, um, for a long time, the party had, you know, tolerated basically pro-life members. Uh, Even uh, there's a few of them left. Uh, Henry Coyar and, in Texas, and and Pelosi and the rest of the House leadership, they pulled out all the stops. They were they were donating, giving him tons of money, uh, and visiting his district. Um, and then he just barely beat a uh, pro-life, um, uh, sorry, a, a pro-abortion rights challenger for the second time. And he's not only, he's not only a, a, a anti-abortion guy; he's in bed with the oil company and votes with Trump most of the time and that's a legacy of the Democrats history of triangulating on the abortion issue. For a long time you could basically say like well, you know, we'll sort of pander to pro-life sentiment by indul- by indulging these pro-life Democrats or people who would say they're personally pro-life but like as a matter of public policy you know, you support Roe versus Wade Joe Biden used to say that um, and now that the ground has been cut out from under that position. You know, now it's a question of like, no, we actually have to face brass tacks. And I think that, you know, is that that history is one reason why they're so hesitant to, uh, you know, grapple with the issue squarely. But clearly, you know, full-throated defense of abortion rights is what is called for in this moment. And the way that they could actually, I think, mobilize people would be to take those concrete steps, you know, which they are doing some things at the state level. um, But, you know, there is a legacy of of, uh, you know, triangulation that they do need to live down. And so far, it's it's been a mixed record at best.
0: Yeah, definitely seems to be the case, definitely seems to be the case. And I mean, that that leads me to a broader question, Ryan, about How you sort of see from like this 10,000 mile view, if you will, from up above, about uh, where do you think that leaves us in terms of the political... Landscape inside the U.S. at this point, in general. I mean, we've discussed issues with the um, Supreme Court. Uh, certainly, Trump and uh, the Trumpist wing of Republicans uh, seem poised to really make a play for power, both in the midterms and in 2024, in some form or fashion. It's just, what, what is sort of your estimation of where the politics of the U.S. are right now, uh, in the midst of you know so many uh, material issues facing its you know most uh, uh, exploited elements.
1: Yeah, well, that's a big question. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it it is the case that basically the not only is there, you know, twenty twenty gonna be an election, twenty sorry, twenty twenty two going to be a midterm election, it's going to determine whether or not there's going to be a legit election in twenty twenty four. Here in my home mm-hmm. state of Pennsylvania, you have election denier Doug Mastriano who is uh, just friendly with absolute lunatics and was at January 6th and bus people there uh, organized, you know, transport for people, um, you know, and, and similar candidates are on the ballot in almost every swing state um, in, in Michigan and in Arizona. And if Republicans win control of the, you know, critical mass of those swing states, they're going to try, at least, to rig the system and do, you know, a sort of legal version of January 6, like Trump tried to do before January 6, basically just trying to get himself, you know, put in as president for life through legal chicanery. Um, and up until recently, it seemed as though that it, was, it did not look good. You know, Biden's approval rating was in the toilet, and the Republicans were leading the congressional ballot. Um, but in the last couple of months, things, it's gotten much more contested. Democrats are now leading the congressional ballot. They have to win by quite a bit to uh, retain control of the House, um, thanks to gerrymandering. Um but inflation is coming down, and also thanks to the Dobbs decision, you see a huge surge in voter registration among women, um, and so it's not out of the question that Democrats will at least control the Senate, and maybe possibly the House next next year. And um, in that case, you know, then then it's set up to at least have a fair fight uh, in twenty twenty four, according to the rules and maybe even get some uh, legislation passed to fix the broken Electoral Procedures Act, and maybe even get some voting reforms. Um, But yeah, we're not in a great spot, to say the least.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, Ryan, that um, we are sort of in a a difficult place uh, electorally. And it just seems that uh, we're actually living through the consequences of, you know, years of having the Democratic base and their material needs that, you know, were more or less uh, pretty consistent over time. And just to have them consistently ignored. And then in some cases, if we look at, say, you know, Biden's recent, you know, Pledge of 37 billion more dollars to the police and to increase their numbers on the streets of the, excuse me, of the U.S. just two years after a rebellion against racism uh, as it pertains to police terror was going on. I think it's just one example of this. And, you know, like with the, um, the whole policy around Uh, uh, you know, student loan debt uh, forgiveness and all of that and how it was celebrated, although many are still uh, saying that it was inadequate. And I tend to agree with that estimation. It just feels like in a number of ways, the uh, Democrats continue to sort of shoot themselves in uh, the foot. And so I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see more and more people look for real alternatives to uh, not just the Democratic Party, but to to, um uh uh alternatives to the mainstream political um institutions as they stand today sort of in general because I mean, even if we just look over the last two years of the coronavirus, with over a million people dead, all kinds of ripple effects on poor working and oppressed people here in this country that are still basically going uh, unaddressed. You know, I mean, even that in and of itself, I think uh, uh, can cause a lot of people to question the legitimacy of a lot of these institutions. But as you say, I think there is a lot that's yet to be seen. Um, uh, The polls, I think, are going to be uh, increasingly interesting. As you know, we move closer and closer to November But either way, even if uh, the Democrats see some victory I still think that there's going to be quite a bit of work That's going to need to be done For a lot of these complicated and important questions To really be answered But we're going to leave it there for now Here on By Any Means Necessary On Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Ryan Cooper, so much for joining us today We'll be right back So please stay with us By Any Means Necessary And today we're talking about uh, police uh, attacking and harassing people at New York's West Indian Day celebrations. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Natalia Marquez, a writer and organizer from New York City. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us.
2: No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And uh, Natalia, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, every year, of course, is held the popular West Indian Day Parade. And I believe it's uh, also happened here uh, 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 recently. And, you know, there's been some noticeable differences in the way that the celebrations have played out in Brooklyn from year to year that I think are directly connected to broader issues within New York, such as gentrification, racist policing and things like that. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what went down at the West Indian Day Parade uh, uh, in New York. And uh, what do you think it sort of implies about where both the neighborhood and the city are heading here?
2: Yeah, so um, recently in in the West Indian Day Parade celebrations, the NYPD really ramped up its policy of over-policing. In the celebration that happens in the morning of the parade, Juver, um, there were NYPD checkpoints, bag searches, and metal detectors. You know, attendees were not allowed to carry alcohol. Their bags were searched for both weapons and alcohol. And the NYPD is doing this in the name of protecting Brooklyn residents against gun violence. But, you know, community members have pointed out that gun violence is perpetrated by all communities, It's not specifically the West Indian Community, And yet other parades are not policed in the same manner. Santa Con notoriously is quite rowdy and is not over policed in this way. You know, St. Patrick's Day, um, people have been beaten to death at St. Patrick's Day celebrations in Manhattan. And yet, you know, this outcry and outrage from the NYPD against so-called gun violence never follows the violence at those parades, right? And so this double standard shows um, a policy of, honestly, um, quite honestly, racism, as how how many community members have pointed out that there's a double standard in the nature of policing around this West Indian Day Parade celebrations. And a lot of it points to the gentrification that is happening in Brooklyn, um, as many cases across the country have um, pointed out and shed light on the fact that gentrification and over-policing go hand in hand. Actually, over-policing is a process that facilitates gentrification. Um, you know, the white population in Crown Heights in central Brooklyn, where this parade takes place, has doubled in the last decade. And, you know, with this influx of new white residents, so-called quality of life complaints have skyrocketed. So things like noise complaints. Um, even, you know, Crown Heights residents such as Kathleen Riley, a white resident. She was arrested in 2017 for many false complaints against community members in Brooklyn um, for falsely claiming that a steel band rehearsal was disorderly and a lot of complaints surrounding the West Indian Day celebrations in particular. And as a result, you know, community members say that the parade is looking different than it has, you know, 10 years ago, as rents increase and evictions skyrocket in this area. You know, over-policing is a process that is facilitating the displacement of people in central Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it just sounds like on a number of levels, Natalia, how um, different issues of race and class that are facing New York City right now, and certainly uh, uh, in areas all across the country, they seem to sort of be colliding in in terms of what we saw at the West Indian Day Parade, where a lot of these um, uh, contradictions sort of uh, came to bear in a very public way, as you've been laying out. And I think it's just one example of how gentrification, can have a real impact on, um, you know, the culture of neighborhoods for the longtime residents. I mean, I know here in D.C., we've seen similar issues of, you know, noise complaints from the street performers and things like that. Just these elements of the city that really give a place, you know, a personality feel like they're being sort of, you know, methodically pushed out and suppressed out of uh, an effort to basically make things more comfortable for the generally younger, generally whiter, generally more affluent, um, newer residents to cities like D.C. and New York. And so it seems to me that this um, kind of pressure and that this kind of repression, as you note, is really a part of the broader uh, sort of racist displacement process that uh, gentrification is sort of mobilizing and really weaponizing uh, police in that way to act as sort of, uh, you know, the 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 armed guards of property in that way to sort of carry this whole process out, you know, what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to point out that um, in Flatbush, um, Flatbush had the highest number of eviction filings in the last four weeks at 229. And Flatbush is um, a heavily West Indian, you know, part of Brooklyn. It's it's very close to where the parade is celebrated in Central Brooklyn. Um, and median rents in Brooklyn jumped 17 percent from just since 2021. Um, Right now, it's almost $3,000 per month. And so, you know, the average resident of Brooklyn, um, average black and brown resident of Brooklyn, um, marginalized person can't afford these rents anymore. And as eviction protections have, you know, expired, the eviction moratorium expired last year, you know, the ERAP money is is not necessarily coming in anymore. Um, You know, people can't afford to live in their own neighborhoods. And now police are creating um, an environment that's hostile to people that have lived there for decades. Um, at at the, you know, in, in, So in the service of these newer white residents who are raising the property values, right? And, and this is something that's been analyzed. In New York City, um, an analysis from 2009 to 2015 shows that areas with more real estate investment, some were over-policing. And neighborhoods with increasing property values also saw more arrests for, like, misdemeanor offenses, right? And so this is a process that, you know, has been documented. It's insidious, and it's getting worse now as there's less and less protections for average people in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah. And uh, I was hoping you could say more about uh, this, these, these these dwindling protections that we're seeing both in Brooklyn and in uh, New York City, which, you know, is one of the most expensive places to live, you know, in the U.S. certainly. And I think perhaps one of the most expensive in the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the eviction moratorium um, is something that um, it's expired since uh, December. So that means that Um, If you don't apply, haven't applied already for emergency rental assistance, you can get evicted. Um, And yet there's still people in the neighborhood that even if they've applied for ERAP, their landlords will still try to evict them. Actually, this is something that's been happening to my neighbor. Um, I live in Flatbush in Brooklyn, and this is something that I can see with my own eyes. Right. Um, And the eviction moratorium itself was not something that was handed to the residents of New York state it's something that was fought for, right? So, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge movement in New York City um, and across the country to, uh, to, like, demand to cancel the rents rather than have an eviction moratorium. There was a massive movement that said that, you know, the eviction moratorium would only push back the crises as more and more people lost their jobs and piled up this rent debt. Um, but even the eviction moratorium itself was a result of these mass movements, right? It was a concession that the government of, of New York State gave to, you know, uh, tenants and activists across the state. Um, and every single, you know, few months, it would expire and people would rush up to Albany to protest or protest in New York City. And then it would get um, the expiration would get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And the only reason that it lasted and as long as it did until December of 2021 was is a, a direct result of this struggle. Um, and I think that's something important to keep in mind that all of these rent protections and all of the resistance that has happened to gentrification across Brooklyn and New York State and the entire country has been a result of struggle. Um, Right. And that's that's the way many of the neighborhoods feel like, you know, all of these protections aren't handed to them, that over policing is something that is working against them and something that they need to struggle to to change.
0: Yeah, definitely. And of course, one of the uh, attendees of uh, the West Indian Day Parade was none other than uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams uh, himself, of course, a former official in the NYPD. And and I'm just sort of wondering, um, Natalia, like not only like what do you think? Adam's sort of role as mayor and as a former cop in NYPD, how that sort of uh, indelibly colors his position on uh, the West Indian Day celebration, but also just in terms of what that means for all of these different uh, uh, problems facing the people of New York in this moment. I mean, he congratulated the uh, police, actually, for their work at the parade, saying at a, a news conference in Lower Manhattan, quote, we use the full scape of every agency and their capabilities. And because of that, you saw a celebration Without that traditional violence that was attached. And so it, the, the support for this over policing that we're talking about, Natalia, goes all the way to the top of a, a city government. And I think just shows about the way that, you know, this kind of police harassment and violence is, you know, facilitated and in some cases even egged on by the very people in power, which I think shows a real difference and contradiction in terms of the interest of these officials and the conditions of the people that that uh, uh, they're in place to um, uh, be in power over. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Eric Adams is a very um, pertinent example. Um, you know, the the mayoral race in 2021, both Adams and the Republican candidate, Curtis Lewa, um, ran on this idea that the policy of defunding the police, quote-unquote, Um, that was pushed by activists during the George Floyd uprising had failed New York City. And that's why there was like rising crime in New York, even though, of course, we had just gone through a very devastating pandemic that, you know, was a massive upheaval in society. But what they argued is that the real reason why there was crime um, is because of this idea of defunding the police. Mind you, the police were never defunded in New York City. The idea that the police were defunded here is a mythology, um, you know, an invention. Uh, but both Curtis Lewa and Eric Adams ran on a tough on crime platform. And Adams's role as a former cop really bolstered his image as someone that was going to um, end gun violence in New York City. Um, you know, gun violence is definitely not as high at all, as it has been, you know, in past decades in New York. Um, if you look from, you know, the 80s, 90s until now, crime has drastically decreased. There is a slight uptick in violence due to, you know, the massive societal upheaval that was the COVID-19 pandemic. But as a whole, you know, um, crime is not, you know, massively high. It's not, it's not skyrocketing, right? But Eric Adams, run, you know, still has this policy of fear of gun violence that he pushes on New Yorkers and uses to justify these policies of over-policing, um, such as demanding the highest police budget that's, you know, ever been, you know, ever existed, right? At $11.5 billion the NYPD, that's more than most militaries in, in the world. Um, you know, by, um, by, you know, restarting the plainclothes unit, that uh, is respon- has been responsible for so much violence across the city, including um, you know, the plainclothes unit was responsible for the death of Eric Gardner. That was a plain clothes unit cop. And you know, this is just another example of that, Eric Adams advocating for this policy of over policing. And Adams also has an interesting role in in housing in New York City. He was um, out of by far, out of any mayoral candidate, the most funded by housing developers, the landlord that owned the Twin Parks building in the Bronx, in which you know 17 people died, um, many, many violations around heat in the building. Of course, a space heater was what triggered the massive fire. So this is really like a landlord that's responsible for 17 deaths, right? Um, he was actually on Eric Adams's housing transition team, um, so you know, good friends. Of course, Eric Adams made excuses for for this landlord, Rick Gropper, when discussing the Bronx fire. He, Eric Adams, actually said that you know tenants needed to learn to close the doors behind them um, when they were running from this fire. Um, mind you, the doors in. All New York City buildings are supposed to be self-closing, but they were not at this particular building. And again, 17 people died in that fire. And so Eric Adams is is inextricable as a figure from the policy of both gentrification and also over-policing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, what what you laid out in terms of... The the whole defund the police piece and that whole, I mean, frankly, this myth and this narrative that we heard from the Adams administration, I mean, I feel like we saw that actually all around the country, uh, some, you know, supposedly defunding the police led to some spike in crime. So then that justifies even more um, uh, money and numbers for uh, uh, police. Of course, we know Joe Biden himself recently just uh, pledged a $37 billion to the police in uh, this country. And what I think it's says uh, Natalia is the fact that you know there are elements of these officials these these ruling class figures that see the potency of a, a movement against racist police terror and the way that it makes connections to these other things like housing like immigration and like so many other uh, problems that that we can point to and the fact that there's this fear amongst them and this backlash is what I think we can really call it i think just shows the importance that we sort of keep up that very same kind of uh, uh, organizing work uh, when we see the fact that the state feels a need to respond to it and we continue to see these abuses not only go on, but to intensify. I think it just sort of highlights the importance of continuing to build a mass movement, Natalia, that can, uh, uh, you know, really answer and reconcile all of these problems that we've been discussing, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, in 2020, there was a mass movement against racist policing. Um, and, you know, the spirit of that movement really lives on, you know, you know, thousands of people came out to the streets in Brooklyn in particular. And so the, the area really has like a vibrant history of resistance. And of course, you know, just to tie it back to the West Indian Day celebrations, you know, West Indian Day is originated from Caribbean carnivals. And Caribbean carnival celebrations come from slavery and black resistance. So, you know, when French colonists in the Caribbean um, barred enslaved people from celebrating, um, you know, mass graves and and carnival celebrations, slaves actually held their own celebrations in which they would they would use that opportunity to taunt the slave owners and to mock them. Um, and in New York City. Um, West Indian um, immigrants were the ones that that started these celebrations. It, because of the colder weather in New York, the celebrations actually happen far late into the summer rather than in February. But um, you know, the the history and spirit of resistance lives on. I think the the spirit of celebration and of joy um, that that lives on in Black Brooklyn, I think, is something that really needs to be preserved and and celebrated and. Not treated as, as violent in this very racist way that, that the NYPD, you know, talks about the, this parade, right? You know, the NYPD officers, um, in many cases have been caught spreading racist messaging about the parade online, um, you know, calling participants animals and savages, um, wanting to drop a bomb on, on parade as attendees. So, So this is something that, you know, there's so much racist messaging around these celebrations, but they're really uh, an amazing history of black resistance that that lives on, of course, in the U.S. today.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. And today we're talking about the ongoing struggle demanding justice and freedom for political prisoner Leonard Peltier. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Rachel Thunder, a lead organizer for the Walk to Justice for Leonard Peltier through the American Indian Movement. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Upseat Rachel Thunder uh, I said hello and thank you To you for having us on And thank you to everybody who is listening I'm Plains Cree um, And my name is Rachel Thunder
0: Absolutely. And we're so glad to have you on today, Rachel, because as I mentioned, there has been a walk to justice for Leonard Peltier that's been going on, I believe, uh, from the beginning of this month. And uh, for people who may not uh, uh, know about the case of uh, Leonard Peltier, I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, just some aspects of his story and uh, why you all uh, saw fit to um, engage this walk for justice for him.
3: Mm hmm. So. Elder Leonard Paltier has been unjustly held as an indigenous political prisoner for the past 46 years. Today is actually his 78th birthday. So he's spent 46 plus years of his 78 years of life um, in the United States prison system. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing that Leonard is guilty of is fighting for his people. You know, just to give a little context, and I won't go into too much detail because of the limited time that we have, um, there was a period of time on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation known as the Reign of Terror, and that started just shortly after Wounded Me in 1973, and so... It was called the Reign of Terror because the uh, corrupt tribal chairman, Dick Wilson, and his goon squad, the guardians of the Oglala Nation, were attacking, murdering, and assaulting the traditional people of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation at that time. And you have to remember that this is sovereign land. This is land separate from the United States government. And so those traditional people and the elders of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation called the American Indian Movement for protection, for them to come in to help protect their people, their women, their children, their elders, you know, the community. And so, answering that call, uh, you know, several warriors went, including Leonard Paltier. And in 1975, <clears throat> at the Jumping Bull residence, which was um, a residence held by the Jumping Bull family there on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Um, an unmarked car with two individuals wearing civilian clothes came into this, this camp. And, you know, given the context of the reign of terror, there was a lot of attacks and murders. There's over 60 unsolved murders um, from that period of time. And so these, these goons and these individuals would be coming into families' residences and attacking them and murdering them. And so fearing an attack from the goon squad, a, a shootout took place. And at the end of the shootout, there were over 150 law enforcement, uh, you know, marshals, goons, FBI agents, all present there with uh, 40 indigenous people participating, mostly uh, children, you know, youth under the age of 18, with the majority of the people there being protected were women and children. So at the end of the shootout, um, those two individuals that had come in in the unmarked car were actually FBI agents, and they were uh, dead at the end, and also one Native American man named Joe Suntz, whose death has never been investigated, and no one has ever been charged with his murder. So, um, you know, following the shootout, there was a uh, manhunt that happened that you know, three individuals ended up being arrested from the American Indian movement. Uh, Bob Rabideau, Rabideau, Dino Butler, and uh, Leonard Peltier. And so Bob and Dino both went to trial and were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense given the context of the reign of terror at that time. And Leonard Peltier was arrested later in Canada and extradited to the United States on... um, Coerced testimonies and falsified evidence, and brought to a separate trial where the contacts and the evidence from uh, the reign of terror regarding self defense were not allowed in the trial. There's proven evidence tampering, proven coerced testimonies. And so he has been unjustly held for the past 46 years with very significant uh, people and organizations, you know, advocating for his release over the years, including the Dalai Lama. Amnesty International, numerous celebrities, one of the prosecuting attorneys from the case even wrote Joe Biden this past year, um, you know, saying that it was a very unjust and corrupt trial and that Leonard should be set free. So as the American Indian movement, um, over almost two years ago, we, you know, made this decision through prayer and through ceremony and through dreams that, you know, we were to walk for our elder Leonard Peltier to release him, to carry that prayer from minneapolis minnesota to washington dc and so we're about a couple of weeks into the walk now we're uh just a little bit west of eau claire we're coming into the wisconsin dells the walk is 1103 miles is going to take in total about two and a half months to complete and you know we know that now is the time he's 78 years old He has type 2 diabetes. He has an abdominal aortic aneurysm that's fatal if it ruptures. And so we're asking Biden to grant him clemency. And just the other day, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, added to the Democratic platform the the clemency for Leonard Peltier. So we're seeing all of these pieces come in, um, you know, giving us hope that this prayer is being answered that Leonard will be free.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you breaking all of that down, uh, uh, Rachel. And, you know, I was thinking as, as you were explaining about how, you know, Leonard Peltier's a real crime was uh, defending his uh, people. And, and I'm wondering how you see the ongoing imprisonment of Leonard Peltier and the work of the American Indian movement, how it's part and parcel of the um, indigenous liberation struggle uh, here in this country and the fact that a group like AIM even had to exist uh, within a broader culture and environment of other radical groups during that time, like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the Young Patriots and groups like this. And so how do you see uh, this history and this fight um, situated within uh, sort of a broader historical struggle uh, uh, against white supremacy and colonialism?
3: Mm-hmm. You know, as, as AIM, as the American Indian Movement, you know, we were officially founded in 1968, but we always say that the American Indian Movement has existed since the beginning of colonization over 530 years ago. You know, Leonard, he represents so many issues that we still face today as Native American people, as the original people of Turtle Island, of this, of what is now known as the United States and Canada. You know, we called this walk the walk to justice because he symbolizes so many injustices for our people. You know, when Leonard was a young, a young boy, he was taken to the boarding school. So, you know, that's something that we're still dealing with today, bringing our children home, you know, finding these mass graves that where our children never got to go home. You know, he represents also this MMIW and MMI. W P movement, the missing, murdered, indigenous women and people movement, you know, during that time in the reign of terror, there were so many murdered and missing. And that's something that we still deal with today. Our people are, um, you know, statistically go missing or murdered more than any other racial or culture group in the United States and Canada. So these are all issues that we still face. And that's why we called this the walk to justice, because, yes, we're asking for justice for Leonard, but we're asking for justice for our people, because as long as Leonard is still locked up and held by the United States prison system, then none of us are free. So until Leonard is free, there's a piece of each and every one of us that are not free. And even as a human being, this is a human being, this is a human rights issue, not just an indigenous issue. If they can do this to one of us, then they can do that to anybody. And it's not right. And that's why we're asking for his release.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you raising uh, Leonard's experience uh, at these schools, which so many uh, indigenous folks had to face in uh, North America. I think some of us are only just finding out about, you know, the the real depth and and scope of the horrors that um, uh, indigenous children had to face with a lot of people not making it out alive. You know what I mean? And and what it shows in the sort of ongoing fight for Leonard's um, freedom to me is. It shows about how this this process, this attack on indigenous people, which, as you as you point out, I think correctly, uh, Rachel, is a human rights issue. That it's really a part of um, this 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 process, this uh, colonial genocidal process that's been taking place for centuries. Not just in North America, but uh, really all over the world, I would say, when you talk about the plight of indigenous people uh, uh, more broadly. And so, I mean, for me, it's just a reminder that, you know, this this history that we read about and the things that we study and the horrors of this process, it's not uh, uh, simply a relic of a bygone era. And not only are some of these processes still ongoing, but as you point out, there's still people trying to grapple with uh, the ripple effects uh, of these things. And that's why I think think from the standpoint of the state, uh, uh, attacking someone like Leonard is 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 necessary almost to serve like an example in case anyone else gets any fancy ideas about, you know, resisting this uh, uh, country and what it's done to oppress people. You know what I mean?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. You know, our people you know, initially, over 530 years ago, it was direct genocide. It was introducing diseases. It was attacking and murdering and massacres of our people. And that, and that direct genocide has transformed into a cultural genocide, you know, where it was killed the Indian to save the man through the boarding school and residential school policies. And it's that, you know, that cultural genocide continues on today. We couldn't even legally practice our traditional ceremonies until 1978 when the American Indian movement was a big part of pushing for our Native American uh, Religious Freedom Act that was passed in the United States. So, you know, they've always been intimidated and scared of our traditional practices of the power of our people. And this is, you know, Leonard, it's symbolic of that. He represents that. It's still that continued attempt to control, divide and conquer our people. And, you know, just for everybody to know, we're very much still here. Our nations are very much still here. Our people are here. We still have our cultures and our ceremonies, and we're not going to stop. We're not going to let anything stop us, and we're asking for Leonard to be free. I did want to take a moment, you know, I do have somebody else here with me, another guest. She's sitting here with me. Her name is Kathy Paltier. She's the youngest daughter of Leonard Paltier. I wanted to introduce her, and if you wanted to ask her any questions, um, you know, she's She's here to
4: answer them and introduce herself. So go ahead, Kathy. Hello, uh, my name is Kathy Peltier. I am the youngest daughter of Leonard Peltier. I was first introduced to my dad in a courtroom, and, um, and that's where my life begins with my dad. Um, always seeing him in the prison um, always and trying to get to know him um, through the prison walls. And uh, Going to see him at prison, seeing, uh, reading books about him. That's all I know about him as my dad.
0: Well, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us as well, Kathy. And I mean, you know, uh, uh, I'm just sort of wondering because this this is obviously a different level uh, for you because this is your father that we're talking about. And I was hoping maybe you could speak to the importance of, you know, how the family aspect of things connects to the organization and to the movement, and just how important a collective effort is in trying to free uh, someone like uh, Leonard Peltier, who's you know been incarcerated. Unjustly for all of this time?
4: Well, first of all, he doesn't even know his family. I mean, my oldest brother, um, Chauncey, he, um, he was 10 years old when he, um, our dad was taken away to prison. So um, people just know him as Leonard Peltier, not Leonard Peltier as a father, a grandfather, and now even a great grandfather. So, um, I mean, he, all he was doing was uh, uh, protecting um, the people. That what happened on June 26th, 26 1975 and um, and now he's you know paying the price of not being with his family.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate you raising that because you know so many political prisoners like Leonard Peltier, they're they're thoroughly demonized, um, you know, through the media and sometimes through governments and made to be these you know monstrous, beastly people. But you know, as you point out, these are people who have been taken from their families, taken from their communities, taken from all uh, uh, the basic things that anybody would want. Which to me just sort of compounds uh, the criminal aspect of what's been happening to Leonard Peltier for all. All these uh, uh, decades. And Rachel, if people want to find out more about how to get involved with the Walk for Justice uh, for Leonard Peltier, uh, uh, you know, what does that look like? Where can they go and How can they find out more information?
3: Thank you for asking that. Um, so we have a Facebook page where we post daily updates, kind of like on the route that we're taking. We post pictures, we share articles that have been written and radio show links. So that's, facebook page is called leonard peltier walk to justice and there's also links on there you know if you wanted to donate supplies or make a monetary donation or sign up to come walk with us or come meet us you know all of that information is on there and we do regularly check the messages on that facebook page and if you don't have facebook that's okay too um we have a email for the walk and that is called leonard peltier walk to justice at gmail.com
0: Absolutely. And the last thing I wanted to ask Rachel is, you know, um, how do you see the importance of linking up the Um, struggle to free Leonard Peltier with some of the other major struggles that we're seeing today, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, around uh, climate change or, you know, mass incarceration or police terror or women's rights or all these sorts of things, because it seems to me that a lot of these different movements and different organizations have a lot of uh, common threads that could be strengthened should they, you know, uh, come together. And so it just seems that, you know, uh, a unity in really building a kind of mass movement is going to be really important to not only answer all of those other critical questions that I just noted but definitely to secure the freedom of a Leonard Peltier once and for all
3: yeah you know you're absolutely right that all of those threads are connected because these are all human rights issues. These are all issues that we face as human beings, not as separate nations or separate you know, races or culture. It becomes a human being issue. You know, if our Mother Earth, if the Earth is destroyed and we can't live here, that's a, that's a human being issue. Everyone is going to suffer from that. If our rights as individuals, as human beings, is challenged um, you know, and we're unjustly incarcerated, that's a human being's issue. You know, if we're being attacked by the police, you know, which is why the American Indian movement was officially founded in the first place and the brutality of the police in Minneapolis, Minnesota, born out of the spirituality and the prison systems like Stillwater. You know, that's a That's a human rights issue. All these injustices that we see, um, you know, even with the murders of like George, George Floyd um, there in Minneapolis, where the American Indian movement was on patrol there on the streets at that time. You know, these are all linked. It's all goes back to the injustices that these colonial governments and these colonial institutions try to enforce on our people and all people as human beings.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Rachel and Kathy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us by any
5: means
0: necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, September 12th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call, if by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202 521 1320. That's two. 025211320 Our rappers are standing by You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means You can also hear by any means necessary on digital. That's dot dot You can also follow us on social media Facebook and twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary And as always we are broadcasting streaming live from Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. It is great to be with you today. Absolutely. And it's great to have you with us, Mr. Early. And, you know, uh, yesterday, of course, uh, September 11th, a uh, major uh, pivotal time in United States history because of the terrorist attacks that took place on the World Trade Center in New York City. And uh, the ripple effects uh, felt not only through the U.S. and uh, through much of the world, certainly of the Middle East. Uh, for years after the fact, and um, but there's also another 9/11 that's uh, uh, very noteworthy in history, Mr. Early, and that's uh, the coup in Chile, where the uh, uh, which saw the death of the elected socialist uh, uh, president Salvador Allende, and the rise of really just a very brutal uh, 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 dictatorship of uh, Augusto Pinochet, and of course, you know there are. Also, uh, connections and ripple effects from that period in Chile up until this very day. But I'm just sort of wondering, uh, uh, Mr. Early, how you're sort of uh, analyzing the uh, the situation in Chile and, you know, its trajectory of a country up until this point, because, of course, this year they're marking this anniversary under you know the new president uh, Bordic. uh chile of course recently had their constitutional vote where uh, uh the new constitution basically was uh rejected and therefore uh, chile is still uh, living under the constitution of the Pinochet era though boardage feels confident that at some point they'll be able to you know they'll be able to come to some agreement on the Constitution but with all of that in mind mr early like I say just uh wondering how you sort of see the historical connecting with the contemporary and uh, the political situation in Chile and Latin America and uh, elsewhere where we see these dynamics uh cropping up
5: very important uh, subject matter uh, looking back over Uh, This last almost half-century, 49 years since uh, September 11, 1973, uh, when what we refer to uh, today as uh, the pink tide, the social democracy uh, policies uh, emanating from uh, the uh, government um, of Allende, a socialist, a social democrat who uh, was elected, uh, and was overthrown, uh, brutally, assassinated, um, including the support of the United States government in that process where tens of thousands of people, uh, disappeared and, uh, three, um, uh, thousand or so people, uh, killed, uh, children kidnapped, never to be seen again, uh, in some instances raised by other families. And uh, in terms of here in the United States, particularly with regard to Washington, D.C., the subsequent assassination of um, the foreign, uh, Allende's foreign um, um, minister who was uh, working at the Institute for Policy Studies here in Washington, who was assassinated with one of his colleagues on Sheridan Circle. Uh, that commemoration, which is held annually to remind us, is coming up. Uh, I think it's late September, early October uh, for people in the Washington metropolitan area to be aware of, so that we have a real connection uh, to this historical date. And we see that the pulsating tide for social democracy policies for justice for the most marginalized parts of the population, particularly indigenous people who are substantial numbers uh, in Chile, um, it's still a very vibrant one that has taken a lot of twists and turns. And so that this is not simply a look back over the last 49 years. It's to understand Chile today in the context of the resurgence of what is called the pink tide um, in relationship uh, to the more formal socialist developments that uh, developed in Latin America in the, the early 90s uh, with the popular election, of the late President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, uh, which is also tied to the historical march against colonialism, thinking of uh, the Queen of England's death and the monarch uh, monarchy and colonialism, uh, the, the tide that goes back to Simón Bolívar uh, trying to liberate all of Latin America as the United States of Latin America against European colonialism. So that's the context in which we should understand the twists and turns Uh, Of the long road, particularly from uh, 1973 through 1990, when the fascist bloody dictatorship of uh, of Pinochet uh, ruled and a constitution was, uh, a sham constitution was installed, supported uh, overtly by the United States uh, elite classes, political classes, and military uh, backdrop. And so that this recent election and the rejection uh, of a very progressive uh, a new constitution to replace the uh, P- Pinochet dictatorship era uh, is one that needs close examination. And there is a lot of debate about what went out. But does that does not simply translate in simple numbers and statistics, um, uh, per se. We've seen a reshuffling of the Boric government now away from a more formally progressive leftist to bring in more centrist. Uh, reflecting the divisions and the negotiation that went on around this constitution. And so uh, here we are with having rejected that. But it is not a setback and a total uh, loss kind of uh, summation. Uh, It is another uh, sidestep along a long winding road uh, since 1990 when that dictatorship was overthrown.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering what what do you think we could uh, pull and learn Excuse me, from uh, the whole experience with uh, Chile and its constitution, Mr. Early, because I think a lot of people were uh, uh, sort of disappointed that it, it it didn't pass. But, you know, we often talk on the show about participatory democracy and a real radical kind of democracy and how that often is not a straight line, it's not an easy task, it's it's not uh, a paint-by-the-numbers sort of deal. I mean, it really is a process that uh, does require the involvement uh, of a whole nation, as the drafting of this Constitution did. And so, I'm just wondering what do you think we can sort of pull from what we know uh, from this, uh, from these uh, uh, experiences, and how, while of course understanding that, you know, our circumstances and in, in, in other parts of the world are different, but that there can be a benefit to uh, seeing how some things played out when we attempt our own democratic uh, 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 projects throughout our uh, own uh, social movements and things like this? I think some
5: of the lessons that are reaffirmed that we have witnessed uh, before is one uh, that the progressive movement uh, is ultimately responsible for the overthrow of repressive policies uh, and the implementation of new policies which means that uh, before we look to external factors that undermine this recent election in Chile, for example, we need to look to what are our strengths and what are our limitations and weaknesses. And one of the things that's being talked about now and debated uh, in Chile post uh, this election and a resounding rejection uh, of the new constitution is communication, uh, that we have to be in more constant consistent dialogue with civil society, with organized civil society, about the complexities of political negotiations and what compromises come forth that would be, for example, elements in the Constitution that was rejected. Rather than inhabiting a a place that just says we are progressives, which is an ideological statement, which helps to illuminate uh, the direction for progressive politics, but in and of itself, is not sufficient because the struggle for power, the struggle for governance uh, over the resources and the authority of political violence uh, and the standard of living and the like, is a complicated, uh, messy one. And that we have to be in more constant political education and exchange with ordinary citizens. Uh, There was a major uh, onslaught, uh, as has been the case throughout Latin America, by elite, uh, uh, centrist, and right-wing uh, media, and what has been described with by Venezuelans and, and Cubans, for example, as a mediatic war, and indeed it is the, the battle of ideas, is we have to do a better job in, of that. Secondly, uh, we have to move away from, again, our abstract perspectives about working people and oppressed and exploited minorities, and to understand in those contexts, using that terminology, the complexities were, for example, there were a number of Native peoples uh, where the platforms uh, of this new constitution would give them really of democratic rights and range over much of their own life uh, and property and land. Uh, which was stolen from them in colonialism and where they've been marginalized from these bourgeois democratic republics. And some of them were unclear of exactly what that would be. So they had varying perspectives about how uh, to manage that, and not all of them voted for the, the this, this this new uh, constitution. Over and there are other examples uh, to be given uh, like uh, full medical health rights, uh, LGBTQ rights and and the like. What this suggests is that this is just another veering off uh, what will become a historical trajectory, as we've seen in Latin America, towards progressivism. So the fact that this um, this vote, first of all, this Constitution was put together, was a step forward. The fact that the vote took place in relative calm and peace and respect is another step forward. The fact that these uh, positive progressive policies are on the agenda. They've not been thrown out. They are the new starting point of a a new uh, debate and public engagement around formulating a new constitution, uh, is to be seen as a moment of stasis, if you will, not as a moment of of loss. And that the Boric government, uh, a relatively young government by way of age, uh, that had a lot of left progressives in it, has had to take a step back and to bring some t- centers in to reflect what is really the objective situation of the balance of power. And so that cannot just be an ideological directive since it is since it is not a presidential center. Uh, governance stewardship where the, where a one, uh, executive privilege can be uh, raised and simply these laws go to play, go into play. A negotiation, a new type of negotiation has to go on. And so that we have to be more fully informed about how to better communicate and how to extract the best compromise out of this particular moment of the balance of forces, uh, in, in Chile. And I think that Chile will continue to be a part of this new, Resurgence of the pink tie throughout Latin America. It will not certainly go back uh, into the fascist, uh, bloody dictatorial effort uh, of the of the Pinochet, Pinochet regime between 1973 and 1990. So this is a context just for stepping forward and for people outside of Chile uh, to become informed about it, to engage Chilean civil society, and to engage the progressives in Chile. Uh, to, because these are regional issues about health, indigenous rights, women's rights, the right to abortion, and the like. Uh, they have national particularities, but this is where the issue of international solidarity across the ideological and political spectrum of people who are generally liberal and are progressive-minded, in addition to those who more be more, be more radical transformers, uh, this is a new context in which to be supportive of the next step. Of the Chilean population towards uh, a updated our new constitution.
0: Yeah, and and in talking about that Pinochet era in Chile, Mr. Early, I mean, what do you see? Because I'm always looking at these sorts of issues, both historically and in a contemporary sense um you know from a regional standpoint and from a hemispheric standpoint as well and so this is a broad question perhaps but i am just wondering you know what did that coup in chile in 1973 mean for Latin America, certainly for uh, ongoing U.S. interests in uh, uh, Latin America, and certainly in Chile specifically, uh, because and I'm and I'm wondering that because it just feels relevant, giving the uh, excuse me orientation and politics of a Bordich uh, government and all these things like this and the things that they're attempting to do, the a uh, new constitution included. And so, why was uh? Why was, what was the impact or the, the effect, if you will, of this coup in Chile in 1973? And, and do you still see um, certain dynamics from that sort of emanating throughout the region today?
5: Well, it was a watershed moment from a negative point of view. And with the neoliberal paradigm of capitalism, as we understand it today, that is a, um, uh, a substitution of uh, corporate and market interests. Uh, within state governance, uh, as opposed to uh, the liberal and necessary policies of health care and education and employment for the masses of the people. Uh, Neoliberalism, with the so-called Chicago Voice from the University of Chicago, that neoliberal economics, uh, a lower role of the state and the well-being of its citizens, and a higher role of the state and a dominant role of the state in facilitation, of uh, corporate capital interest was really set in place. And it's one then well beyond Chile that is being fought today. Uh, It is the impetus that brought a Hugo Chavez uh, to popular democratically elected political power uh, in uh, the early 90s. One can conceivably see that in 1959 it is the underpinnings of what brought Uh, The Cuban Revolution uh, up up against the Batista dictatorship, again, with the United States uh, supported outright, and the bloody kind of authoritarianism was going on. Uh, It is the underpinning of the overturn of this vulgar, violent neoliberalism that we see expressed in the Bolsonaro government um, within um, Brazil, uh, which is being contested by the social democracy of Lula da Silva of the Workers Party, and the vote that is upcoming in just a few weeks—I think it's October 4th—and uh, Brazil is a is the third largest economy in this hemisphere, at the United States and Canada, and a huge player in South-South relations: uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And so that these are just not narrow national questions in the case of what happened uh, uh, in 1973 and the overthrow of the Allende government, the elected Allende government with U.S. support, Uh, it also brings us to this global moment of the shift into a multipolarity. And we're seeing that multipolarity expressed in Latin America, which Chile is a part in the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, CELAC, which explicitly excludes uh, the United States and Canada, although 99 or so percent of those countries have bilateral relations with the United States, it shows that inter, respectful interdependence in their regional self-determination takes priority over their subservience, uh, as was the case with Pinochet, uh, to the neoliberal paradigm emanating from here in the United States. So that that is the, the significance historically and the implications in the contemporary moment of, of where Chile uh, will likely move in the form, formulation of a new constitution in which uh, I would think that many of the really baseline democratic rights issues, like for indigenous people, the rights of women to control their own bodies, uh, will make uh, advances. But it is a class struggle between, ultimately, uh, the elites who have controlled that country, notwithstanding the fact that they are part of a broad, popular front of even working people who voted against some of the progressive elements of this, uh, it is Uh, not an even uh, situation of who is in that front. It is still an elite corporate uh, Eurocentric class uh, that dominates. And so this is just another step in what has been a long and will be a continuing protracted battle in which progressivism over time uh, gains uh, a a, a mark of of normalcy. Uh, And I think that is what we will see coming through this next part process in which it will be a more direct negotiation, certainly at the level of government stewardship uh, with these centrists that have been brought in uh, to work with these new younger leftists um, which will really objectify where the lines of battle are and where the lines of possible progressive compromise will exist.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington DC, we'll be right back. So please stay with us To by any means necessary, join Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521 That's 2 02521 I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And uh, Mr. Early, like a lot of people, we've been discussing um, the recent death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II with, understandably, a lot of uh, commentary and criticism about uh, the history and ravages of that family and even what Elizabeth herself oversaw uh, in her lifetime amidst, you know, calls for people to, you know, honor her humanity and people asking about, well, what about the Humanity of her uh, colonial subjects. And, you know, what's been interesting to me is just to see how different governments have been reacting. I mean, countries like um, Lebanon and Jamaica have announced, um, you know, mourning periods for Queen Elizabeth. I was just looking uh, at a piece that was saying that uh, Gaston Brown, the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda, is actually saying that uh, he plans on holding a, a, a referendum within three years Uh, So that uh, they can basically decide whether they want to become a republic or remain uh, under uh, the crown, which it seems that uh, more uh, countries in the region are are considering. But be that as it may, uh, Mr. Early, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, what, what you make of. You know, uh, uh, someone like a queen Elizabeth, who I believe ruled for 70 years, died at the age of uh, 96. And somehow, despite the the reality of what she's done and what her family has done, still somehow is able to, you know, hold some kind of place of sympathy for some people. And I don't know if that's just ruling class propaganda or what. But uh, how do you see it?
5: Well, You know, politics uh, and power and ideology are not just uh, powerful rhetorical conceptions floating in the air. They're actually exemplified by very real people who are not floating in the air, but who have their feet on the ground and who are executing in very diverse ways, but in some very consistent and fundamental ways. And the consistent and fundamental ways here is uh, that uh, she inhabited – the position not as an individual in her family, individual family name, but as a part of a monarchical system of colonial, bloody colonial, genocidal exploitation. Uh, She bore in all of her uh, public appearances the overt signs of plunder and mass murder and the crown jewels and the scepter uh, in this uh, notion of the of the Commonwealth of these former colonies that uh, she still had uh, some kind of uh, powerful cultural reign, if you will, over, and that is the context in which she is being celebrated, not as uh, James Smith, uh, John Doe, uh, who simply were citizens of the Republic, but as really the uh, highest instrumentation of colonial rule and its current uh, contemporary expressions uh, in the dominance, uh, for example, in NATO, the expansion of NATO around the world, uh, not just in Western Europe uh, or towards Eastern Europe, uh, but all over the world. This is how she has got to be grasped. And so all of this pomp and circumstances, this uh, Eurocentric supremacy uh, that is being put forward, because there are many people of color who are also upholding her as some ideal person um, because they are members of former colonial countries who are now citizens or immigrants uh, in the the UK who buy into this, including many mainstream African-Americans and others uh, who are the descendants of enslaved people in which uh, it, the British Empire that said the sun would never set on the British Empire, this very, very small landmass, but actually is the heart of global expansion, of globalism, of capitalism, and of exploitation as we know it. So that's how she is being presented as, as, in a kind of way that is really a lying narrative that wants to separate her uh, from the actual circumstance that gives her visibility. Now, there has been very interesting pushback, and this is what all the critiques that one may raise about social media, and there are many to be raised. But social media has also a democratizing, sometimes anarchistic, uh, reflection in which literally millions of people across the globe are able to contest these mainstream narratives that we see in the New York Times and the Washington Post and coming out of the, uh, the, the, the White House. And this is very good. Uh, If you watch MSNBC, as I sometimes do, there was a big debate with Belshi the other day in which he took up the colonial question. And so social media is forcing this, and we need to mature that. We need to magnify these discussions to to challenge mainstream media about this narrow narrative. I was just thinking earlier today that uh, millions of people around the globe would have been interested in a 24-hour view of the service of the late Fidel Castro, for example, notwithstanding the fact that many of them might have been anti-socialists or anti-communists, but they, would, they admired him uh, because of his honesty, his forthrightness, his challenge uh, to U.S. and Western neoliberal uh, dominance. Um, but that is not what is going to be shown. So what we have is a propaganda brigade to continue uh, the, the, the legacy of colonial exploitation and the way that this narrative comes forth. So it is good that this contestation uh, is going on. And the personality of the individual as a private individual was never really separate from her role as a representative of a system of global governance and global exploitation, the Mao Mao in, in Kendia the rampage through India. Um, The Caribbean, uh, just uh, what, last year, a year and a half or so back, Barbados, I think under the new administration of the Prime Minister, Mia Moore, uh, uh, Motley, I think she was Prime Minister, uh, broke away from the Commonwealth. Uh, There are discussions about doing the same thing in Jamaica, and as you've noted, other places in the Caribbean. So this is a part of the winding road of history in the present, in which struggle for justice will veer off now and then, but when you add it all up, you can see a straight line through the zigzag that goes forth. And so the contradictions of her death are going to be made much more manifest now. Uh, Her son, uh, the king, uh, who took all this money from the bloody Saudis, uh, we have to call this out, call these contradictions out, and not let this propaganda uh, individual personality machine continue to roll uncontested. And again, here is where social media uh, has been contesting that to the extent that now even mainstream media has to pick up the broader dimensions of this narrative and not just leave it as a highly individualized portrait.
0: Yeah, I definitely get uh, what you're saying, Mr. Early, in terms of you know, uh, 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 the place of prominence that the queen sort of holds uh, within popular uh, consciousness and why we see, you know, formally colonized people and even, you know, uh, prominent uh, black Americans and things like that in the U.S. Uh, uh, still mourning her. And it's just sort of an interesting thing to me because, I mean, when one actually looks at, uh, you know, what what a monarchy is, uh, wherever, wherever it may be, whether it's the UK or, or elsewhere on Earth. I mean, it's one of the most thoroughly undemocratic, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, forms of government that you can actually have. But yet, you know, for so long, we've been taught in, in socialized and indoctrinated um, to feel like this is the you know ultimate way of, you know, like governing a society or things like that, which is interesting because, you know, a big part of the U.S. history was, you know, the defeat of the British crown in order to establish this republic and really so that uh, this uh, sort of nascent ruling class could really take root here in the U.S. And it's uh, it's just so wild to me because we're talking about by a person whose sort of active political life, you know, spanned almost uh, a, a century, you know, the, the better part of, A hundred years and all the things that happened in that time, all the dynamics, all the liberation struggles, like you're talking about, all of the movements, all of the bloodshed and suffering that has happened, you know, on behalf of colonialism and imperialism, just from this one power, of course, with Britain at one time being the premier uh, uh, empire on the earth. And, uh, you know, something else that I think about a lot and that we often discuss here on the show, Mr. Early, is the fact that, uh, you know, empires almost seem like they're designed to fail. You know what I mean? Just like Rome fell, Britain fell, and it really feels often like we're living in a moment where U.S. imperialism is on the decline. But as I often say, it's not something that I think is going to happen tomorrow or, or any time uh, super soon. And so I feel like even even the... The sort of idea, I feel like a big part of what is going to signal a shift in social attitudes and consciousness around these sorts of things is going to be uh, that fight for a new system and these fight for these progressive measures that should be common sense, particularly in these, you know, uh, wealthier, more well-off sorts of countries. But of course, you still have people even within the uh, imperial metropoles that go without precisely because uh, the wealth is being hoarded by uh, uh, the wealthy elite of the capitalist class, you know what I mean? And so the question about, you know, why do people think what they think, why they feel that we feel, I mean, Karl Marx tells us that basically uh, the ruling class ideology is going to be dominant in whatever kind of uh, a society. And so as ever, the whole sort of uh, political education and real militant struggle piece, I think are still a core aspect of this just like as we saw in the different national liberation struggles and, and slave rebellions that we've seen against uh, British imperialism and, and other empires as well, you know?
5: Yeah, this this, this propagation of of, um, of of dominance, of superiority, uh, this sort of almost, I, I was thinking the other day, this sort of Tarzan complex of which I'm almost 76 years of age, and I, like many and uh, most in my generation, was socialized around... A black, dark, uh, savage Africa, uh, with this blonde, uh, blue-eyed, uh, half-clad uh, white man swinging through the jungle, uh, over, over, dominating uh, these various uh, cultural populations in in Africa, and it just shows you the power of education and and the importance of the educational arena in terms of formal educational systems uh, as well as as more overt political education, the importance of that to bringing people to use their common sense and to recognize that identity politics has a democratic thrust at one level because of dehumanization attempts, as colonization did, against indigenous people, against uh, African peoples, uh, the dehumanization of women as a gender, irrespective of of what uh, their uh, racial or our ethnic uh, back, our cultural background may have been. That basically there is a democratic thrust against a, a a a male dominance and a Eurocentric dominance. Now, it's the Eurocentric dominance that I just want to address very briefly because now we have uh, a head of the U.S. military. Uh, a black woman uh, head of the, the u.s representation in the united nations a black woman who's vice president of the united states who for upholding a kind of liberal uh, uh, supreme eurocentric domination they again not talking about haiti or the black people in colombia or the fact that the upcoming election in in brazil i think it's october 4th uh, where 54% of the population is self-identified officially in the census as Black and mixed race, uh, they're not talking about that. They are really spreading this this Eurocentric uh, 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 supremacy, this Eurocentric. Doctrine, And they're not alienated from some essential notion of being woman or being gay or some essential notion of being black or or some straight line lineage coming out of a colonial background. And so we have to take them on and challenge them and defeat them at the polls as stewards of governance, because they, too, have now become uh, and have for many, many decades have been in the becoming active leadership. Uh, in this extension of colonialism into the modern neoliberal capitalist era. So we have to be careful about over-categorization of black and white colonial and anti-colonial. Those are all important factors. But how do they manifest at the moment? And uh, this whole notion of a cabinet that looks like America, well, now we see in Great Britain a a cabinet uh, that reflects colonialism in terms of the physical appearance or the gender identity of individuals. And so we have to bring people to use their common sense as well as more formal political education to analyze this and to take a position against the inhumanity that the system of monarchy uh, uh, reflects, that the commonwealth reflects, that the role of the Brits and the new multipolarity, and the attacks against China, again against people of color, uh, as as we live in uh, this part of the of the of the twenty first century.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in, in a way, to me, it really feels like an exciting time to sort of see a lot of the different um, democratic projects taking place uh, in Latin America and indeed around the world. where We're talking about different social movements, whether we're talking about like uh, the movement of the landless people in Brazil, the MST, all these sorts of things that I think show just honestly, just like the real Promise of humanity. And, you know, honestly, like the things that humanity is actually capable of and the kind of work that people can uh, uh, actually do. Now, we don't, uh, it's not something that we hear a lot about unless we, we go and seek it out. But th- that to me is what really shows the promise of of what humankind um, is really capable of. And I think also shows that people are more than uh, capable of running society. I mean, you know, certainly their uh, work, their labor, the sweat of their bride, the the wealth that they produce is what makes the world run. And therefore they should run the world, in my humble opinion. And that's a pretty sort of basic position. It's a sort of simple conclusion to come to in my mind. But this is uh, considered, you know, off the charts politically and and much of the U.S. and the West and things like this because of this indoctrination to where, you know, frankly, we've got like this kind of learned helplessness to where we think that the only people qualified to lead are this uh, minority of wealthy, powerful people. But, you know, as I'm saying, you know, uh, even though, you know, I mean, the uh, uh, the operations, the, the machinations of a system in a society itself really springs from its people and therefore we have to fight to bring about a situation where we are the ones with our hands on the reins of society itself. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any
5: Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you join Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lucman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202-521-1320. That's two. 025211320. I am here. Mr. James Early is here as we continue. And uh, Mr. Early, I believe the last time that we had you on the show, we were talking about how um, Venezuela and Colombia were, you know, sending, I believe, uh, ambassadors to each other's countries, reopening um, embassies and things like that. It's being reported now that Colombia and Venezuela are announcing the reopening of their border. And it just appears that uh, the relationship between these two countries, of course, Venezuela and the leadership of Nicolas Maduro and Colombia under the recently elected administration of Gustavo uh, Petro and Francia Marquez. And so, Mr. Earl, just wondering how you see uh, uh, the relevance of this. I mean, do you just see it as just one more step in an ongoing process of uh, warming relations between these two countries? Or how do you sort of uh, situate this, given our, our broader conversation earlier about uh, uh, Latin America?
5: Well, I, I, I think
0: the, the basic framework
5: that I would urge people to consider uh, is within the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, CELAC, uh, which uh, officially and for many years now has proclaimed itself as a zone of peace and a zone of respectful engagement about mutual interests interest and uh, following the established uh, legal protocols of how to handle their differences. There are and will continue to to be uh, certain ideological and political differences uh, between the governance direction of Colombia and the governance direction of Venezuela. But they are mature enough to understand that there are some mutual interests in which they should negotiate these uh, other elements. They should not let the the limitations uh, be the predominant context in which they handle their relationships. Uh, one, uh, Venezuela is a huge trading partner historically uh, in recent times uh, with uh, Colombia. So they will be able to reestablish uh, that economic exchange, which is of mutual benefit to both countries. There have been huge out migrations uh, of Colombians into Venezuela uh, because of the 70, almost 70 years or so, um, internal civil war actually going on. Uh, in, in Colombia, as there have been outward migrations of Venezuelans, um, which the U.S. State Department talks about, but not the reverse, uh, into um, um, uh, Colombia. So uh, that will be stabilized. The drug cartels, uh, and with the U.S. is the major market uh, for the consumption uh, of cocaine, will be limited in many ways because now both countries will be able to work more collectively together to prevent their land masses, their frontiers from being utilized. Uh, so this is a very favorable and positive step forward, not only with regard to the bilateral relations between uh, Colombia and Venezuela. But as uh, one of another impl- emblematic positive expression uh, of the regional cooperation in the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, again, say uh, which calls has called for years to be a zone of peace and respectful and, and engagement. So overall, this is a very positive development. But what are some of the threads that we should look for? A lot has been touted about uh, the fact that, um, Um, Francia Márquez, whom I've known, I know, 25, maybe 30 years uh, as the uh, Afro-woman-descendant vice president. Uh, But we have to now look with inside the Petro government. She's not the president. And so that already there are questions about the ministry that she is supposed to lead with regard to uh, uh, equality, which has to go through the government process, the House and the Senate, and for which there is no structure, there is no budget, there is no personnel assigned. So now we have to get down to the real brass tacks of the application of political policies. Uh, the question of Afro descendants is central in Colombia as Colombia represents perhaps the most diverse uh, Afro descendant communities in our hemisphere, uh, with groups that are called palenteros, which is, is a language group, um, uh, um, uh, raizales. Uh, which is a, another ethnic dimension, as well as Afro-Colombians in general. The policy implications are that some of these groups have historical and legal collective land rights, as let's say contrasted with an individual Afro-Colombian living in Bogota or some other place that owns a house or that rents an apartment. And so uh, what goes on uh, within Colombia in its uh, rapprochement, Uh, With Venezuela is important because the Balovento region, uh, which is a concentrated region of Afro Colombians, which has historically since the 90s uh, supported uh, and their voting the Bolivarian Revolution, there are also implications that they are given the the attention that has been given to the Black Vice President woman of Colombia. So, this is another implication that liberals and progressives uh, and radical transformers in the United States in solidarity. With Latin American self determination, need to be brought out because it is also oh easy with leftist Euro American dominated governments, including in many instances socialist governments, to talk about class and to obscure the fact, the empirical data of the racialized and genderized and indigenized dimensions, the sociology of working class people, and to sort of set these quote-unquote, minority uh, special attention as a kind of vertical category, but not see them as a transversal foundational element of the question of democracy, as I've alluded to would be the case in Brazil, with uh, 54% of the population self-identifying as Black uh, and mixed race. Democracy is not simply a procedural question of who votes and what kinds of bilateral agreements between countries, but it has a sociological base in class But that class has sociological dimensions that are calibrated in different ways, depending on the demography of the country. So this is something that we need to put into the equation of our education about uh, that region and what's going on between Colombia and Venezuela and put in our uh, stewards of saying to our stewards of governance that we elect here in the United States representing foreign policy. For example, Congressman Meeks, who's head of the Foreign Relations Commission in the House of Representatives, who will be going to Cuba soon with Congresswoman Barbara Lee and a number of other congresspeople on an official visit. Um, And Meeks is the one who is the senior on the congressional side who has dealt with the afro descendant issue in Latin America, specifically in Colombia, uh, and who has also had somewhat of a fracture line uh, with the Biden administration and saying you need to talk to the Venezuelans and you need to move back against the terrorism list. And the blockade, and the case of Cuba. There are many complexities here, but that's a part of the analysis and the education that needs to be made, and how ordinary citizens who are not following this 24 7 need to engage in the electoral process, thinking not only about domestic policies and what is in their sectoral interests, but how they are being represented in the international arena and what is our responsibility to hold these elected officials accountable uh, to the ethical and justice ideas and desires that we want, particularly for those of us in the African diaspora and in the indigenous diaspora. And one could say the same about women from the vantage point of the most aggrieved populations, which are working class people uh, in, in those identities.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, speaking of accountability, I mean, one of the things that I've really been uh, keeping an eye on here lately, Mr. Early is sort of like the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 and how it clearly uh, continues to have a uh, serious consequences for poor and working people in this country. I mean, I was just uh, looking at a piece on the Wall Street Journal that was saying that a uh, illness that's caused by COVID-19 actually shrank uh, the U.S. labor force by around 500,000 people. And, you know, we've talked a good bit on the show, about the uh, the impacts that uh, the pandemic has had on the workforce, certainly on uh, uh, workers. Uh, I remember recently we were talking about how you know long COVID it has sort of a protracted um, impact on the plight of workers and things like that. And when you consider that the early the earliest period of this pandemic um, was handled in the U.S. by You know, first, uh, a Republican president and then a second one, uh, both of them, for whatever differences they may have. But both of them are very obviously um, more interested in the and what would benefit capital more so than actual public health. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I think were exposed about this system under the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But I feel like it just goes to show, uh, Mr. Early, about how. You know, human interest in what actually concerns humanity are not a concern under uh, the capitalist system. You know, despite what we're told, that it's, you know, somehow the most humane system and uh, the, uh, the, the institution through which humanity can see its potential really realized. But the reality shows that it, it can't even take care of people in the most uh, basic of ways, even when it has the uh, resources to do so. Because it's, it's not the case that the U.S., you know, wasn't equipped or was too broke to, to adequately address um, COVID-19. No, it definitely had and has the resources to do a lot more. It's just that uh, the ruling class figures that run this society chose not to activate them. You know what I mean? And so it just seems to me that uh, it's just a lot of uh, I almost want to call it like a kind of social death. That people have been consigned to because of how this pandemic has been uh, mismanaged, and uh, and I don't even know if it's accurate to say that it's been mismanaged, or if I should say that it's been managed properly under the um, dictate of capitalism. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like the 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 pandemic is just one example of how there really is. Uh, no help coming for us I think under this system and that ultimately we we have to continue to organize and fight for a new society and uh, a new system. Otherwise the same class that put us in this situation will continue to just sort of uh, brush off our lives and just basically let us go to the grave and not even losing a wink of sleep. You know what I mean?
5: I I do and, and indeed and they will continue to use us as a basic staple, as a basic uh, commodity uh, and their uh, rationale for who should be governed. So, uh, in the case of Joe Biden, who likes to talk about the working class, well, look at his cabinet and show me where the working class is uh, at the center of decision-making. Uh, look at at, at his uh, position against universal health care, his position for fracking, uh, his handmaiden relationship, to use this extra term, uh, with the Saudis and the upholding of uh, occupational uh, apartheid uh, Israeli governance uh, over against the, the, the Palestinians and the black and brown and gay people uh, who are in his cabinet from middle and upper class uh, dimensions, not working class backgrounds, who are propagating uh, the, the same kind of framework. The pandemic has revealed that one might say the DNA and the racialized gender class formation uh, vis-a-vis capital and the founding uh, of this country. Uh, but it has also awakened a consciousness among working people and all of its demographic expressions as Black Lives Matter showed in the in the murder of, of George Floyd or as the fight back for women to recontrol their very being, their 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 personhood, their their womanhood. Uh, that we're seeing the racialized dimensions of this. And we're also seeing the fact that these racialized, genderized, working-class demographics are the ones that make the country literally run. The transportation, the food services, uh, the nurses. Uh, You go on CNN, NBC, any of these frameworks, and you're looking at who are the faces of these medical people. They are immigrant communities, one, two generations back. They are Nigerian. Uh, they're Pakistanis, they're, they're, they're from India, they're citizens of the United States of America, uh, having coming from immigrant and many instances working class backgrounds as well as black Americans, not so many indigenous Native Americans in what we call the United States of America today, but we're seeing more of that as, 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 as well. So the contradictions are becoming clearer and clearer, the unionization movement, uh, led by many working-class black uh, people and brown people. Uh, the Domestic Workers Union is meeting here in Washington with its national congress run by a Poo. Uh, uh, Poo um, uh, Alicia Garza, I don't know if she's still working uh, for the Domestic Workers Union, who is one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter. So that while the contradictions are intensifying, they're intensifying because of the consciousness among these oppressed demographics, particularly from working-class Texas, who are now in motion. And that is where we have to start uh, and ground ourselves as we look at the dire circumstances that we face. But we face that from the accumulated struggle and the basis that we have gained uh, to strengthen ourselves, one in resistance to what they are trying to take back, but simultaneously in what we are trying to take forward. And so that the November elections are one of the additional battle line front uh, that should be a reflection of consistent organizing of these demographics among working people, not just waiting for elections, but these elections cannot be dismissed. Because what we are seeing: is Joe Biden called for it, and i said this many times on this program, and running against Donald Trump, he called for a return to normal order. And of course, normal order was the so-called traditional Republican Party and the traditional uh, uh political elites in the democratic party who would buy for stewardship of governance and exclude everybody else like democratic socialists are these four right-wing dangerous uh people the, the trumpists who have taken over when we look at mass media now msNBC Nbc etc what are we seeing we're seeing the traditional republican uh, uh, pundits uh, who were in the, the republican White houses now uh, on the screens of these so-called liberals Uh, Media, and we're seeing the Cheneys and the like build an alliance with the standard elites of the Democratic Party, the centrists in the Democratic Party, and the next step I predict will be in effect a more formal alliance between these um, traditional Republicans who are being defeated by Trumpism and the elite political centrists in the Democratic Party, who in effect will form a bloc, if not a more explicit party, and it would be against. Progressive, democratic socialists, and certainly uh, anybody who proclaims to be a socialist who's being elected by the general population. So this is a context in which uh, we are seeing a maturation of the contradictions. And while things are very, very dire, I think we have to start with where is our strength. And our strength is that we are forcing these contradictions and we're forcing ourselves more into governance to really guarantee basic needs, universal health care, is a major battle that we have to take up with these Democrats and not just let the discussion of Trumpism or what goes on in the international arena with NATO obscure and divert us away from that. We have to take on these people who are preparing for war against China because they are in preparation. Uh, Their explicit line is not really a defense of Ukraine. It is explicitly to weaken Russia, as dire as the situation of people dying in Ukraine, in in my view, holding uh, Russia accountable, but holding U.S. NATO accountable, which is expanding all over the world. So this is a country, despite how bad it is, uh, I think there is some solid uh, development, and we see a lot of that in Latin America that we can stand on proudly and build on critically.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree that there's definitely a lot there to learn, also thinking about you know what you were noting about how, you know, we're often uh, basically indoctrinated to think that we should sit around and wait for elections. It's just interesting that we're, we're sort of inclined toward this reactive kind of politics instead of proactive. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with voting, but it, it's a it's a trick back to suggest that people have to sit around and wait to vote to actually be involved politically. But we thank you so much, Mr. Early, for joining us today. And we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow an all new episodes. with Always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.